So I used to have this, this tell as a kid, this dead giveaway that when my parents would see it, they instantly knew when I was up to no good. It would it'd go something like this. I would do something that I wasn't supposed to, and I would walk around uh, to the room where my parents were and kind of like peek around the corner with this big smile on my face. And that smile was always accompanied by, by a phrase or by a word. Hi. Hi. And my parents knew as soon as they saw that look, as soon as I uttered that word, they knew that I had been doing something I shouldn't, and they'd instantly go and they'd investigate it. And that's exactly what happened at my grandma's house when I was, I don't know, around eight years old. My parents and my grandma, they were sitting in the kitchen, and I come from the back hallway of my grandma's house and peek around the corner with that smile. Hi. Instantly, my dad, he got up to go and investigate what bad things I had been up to. And as an eight-year-old, I should have known better. I shouldn't have been doing the things that I was, but nonetheless, I did. Um, that day in my grandma's house in her bathroom on her vanity, she had this really big candle that was burning. No good boy. He would have just left that candle alone, but I was anything but that day, I guess. And I grabbed a tissue off the back of the toilet and I frantically waved it above the, the candle, watching the flame flicker until I slowed it down and it was hovering above the flame. Now, it's as if I was surprised by what happens next, and I shouldn't have been because I, as an eight-year-old, should know what happens when you dangle a very thin piece of highly flammable paper over a flame. But I was, because all of a sudden, the flame or the tissue erupted in flames. And in a panic, I tried to figure out what to do, and I'm in a bathroom, right? And what's in a bathroom? You have a toilet full of water, so I figure I'm going to just drop it in that toilet. But in my panic, I didn't catch the fact that the toilet seat was down. And then my grandma used those like really nice cloth covers for the toilet seats. So yeah, uh-oh is right. <clears throat> so I dropped that, that flaming Kleenex onto this toilet seat. And now not only is the Kleenex on fire, but this toilet seat cover is on fire. And now I'm really, I'm really up a creek. Like I don't know what to do. So I come up with the next best idea for how to deal with this compounded problem by each of my mistakes. I figure I'll throw it into the garbage can and snuff it out but I don't realize that the garbage can is plastic and it's also filled with garbage. And so now I've got a flaming tissue and a flaming toilet seat cover in a flaming garbage can. And so out I walk around the back corner of the hallway into the kitchen, peek around the corner with that smile. Hi. <laughs> my dad instantly goes in to see what I had done. And pretty soon I see my dad sprinting through the house out to the backyard with this flaming heap of garbage that's in his hands. Now, my parents and my grandma, they sat me down and tried to figure out what I was doing and how this all happened. And of course, what does an eight-year-old do who doesn't want to get in trouble? Comes up with all sorts of excuses as to why it happened. It was an accident. I didn't mean for it to happen. The, the tissue accidentally jumped in there. It wasn't ever supposed to happen like that. But that same smile that would give me away when I was doing something I shouldn't was the same smile my face carried when I was lying. And so my parents saw right through it. And eventually... They dug into me enough, and I fessed up to what I had done. I can look back at that story 22 years later, and I can laugh, and you guys can laugh. Um, but that story, it contains a pretty valuable lesson for me and for you this morning. It's not a lesson about lying or eschewing blame, saying all of that stuff was an accident, though you could certainly pull those lessons out of there. It's not a lesson for me and Andy, that our son is probably going to have that same exact smile and that same exact high, and that we're probably in some sort of trouble. Um, no, the lesson is this. 
that when we make a mess of our lives, when we, make a, when we do things that we shouldn't, our first instinct is to cover it up. And cover-ups never work. I mean, look at all the cover-up attempts and what they did when I was in that bathroom when I was eight years old. If I would have just taken time and actually admitted what I had done and gone and got my dad right away, I wouldn't have tried covering it up and therefore wouldn't have almost set my grandma's house on fire with a flaming garbage can. But instead, with each attempt I made to cover up what I had done, I only made things worse. And it wasn't just the, my, action, my actions of trying to cover it up, it was also the words, right? Because I tried to cover it up to my parents by lies and excuses and, and even just blatant denial. But every single point in that bathroom when I was eight years old, those cover-ups just made things worse until my dad was sprinting through the house with a flaming garbage can. As, in our walk with God as his children, we know that there is a certain way that God calls us to live, or a right way, and we know that there's a wrong way. We know this because in God's word, God tells us, here's the kind of life that you are to live, this set-apart life, a life that is constantly learning to say yes to Jesus and to say no to sin, right? Simple enough. The problem, however, is that on this side of heaven, we have branded on our hearts the title of sinner saint. So while we are children of God, made that by the blood of the Lamb through the and through the waters of baptism, we still struggle with sin. And struggling with sin means that there are plenty of times where we make a mess of our life because we say yes to sin and say no to Jesus. And that's when the cover-up starts. We immediately think that we can cover up our sins and try to hide them from God. We try to cover up our sins by doing something to fix the problem or doing a whole bunch of things that kind of minimize, good things that minimize the bad things that we do. We even try to cover up our sin by blaming someone or something else for the action that we took or the, de the, or the words that we speak. But in reality, a cover-up, it just never works. In fact, it only ever makes things worse. And this is the lesson that God had to teach to, to Adam and Eve and to us out of Genesis chapter 3, that fig leaves, that fig leaves never work. So you have Adam and Eve the pinnacle of God's perfect creation, perfect themselves, living in perfect harmony with God, living in the perfect garden that God had created for them. Everything was going so well until it wasn't. Until Adam and Eve made a complete mess of God's perfect creation. And they did that because they decided to put their trust and their relationship with God to the side and trust in someone and someone else's words and trust Satan. And they grabbed that fruit from the tree the one tree in the garden God told them not to eat from. And in an instant, everything changed. Perfection was undone. Instead of tasting life, now Adam and Eve were tasting death. And they were experiencing deep emotions that they had never felt before and that God never intended them to feel, these emotions of shame and guilt. And the moment that they started to feel these emotions, what was their first instinct? Let's cover it up. But Adam and Eve, the first thing that they notice when they are feeling shame and guilt is that they're naked. Now, it's not that nakedness in and of itself was a sin. Because if it was, then God would not have created Adam and Eve and put them naked in the Garden of Eden in the perfect world. No, rather, they recognize their nakedness. They recognize the fact that they are completely uncovered. And when you look at the whole of the Old Testament, nakedness becomes synonymous with shame and guilt. So standing there in their nakedness, they recognize that they can no longer stand face to face with the God with whom they were once in a perfect relationship. 
they felt, and rightfully so, that they had to make some man-made coverings for themselves to just stand and come into the presence of God. They would hope it worked. Unfortunately, deep down, I think they really understood that God wouldn't be fooled by, by their attempt at a man-made cover-up. But it didn't stop them from trying. And, and quite frankly, from here, it only gets worse in Genesis chapter 3. Because God comes to chat with his fallen children, and what is Adam and Eve's reaction? Continue the cover-up, isn't it? Let's just keep going with this. Let's hide from the Lord God in the cool of the day among all of the trees of the garden as if created things can hide them from the creator, as if God wouldn't be able to find them amidst, amidst the trees that he put and formed in the earth. And then God actually has the conversation with them and it continues to go downhill. The Lord God called to the man, Adam, where are you? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He says this as if, well, as if God didn't previously know he was naked. And then it keeps getting worse. I think you're sensing a pattern here. Adam says, it's the woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. He says this as if it's somehow God's fault that he had committed this sin. And, and also he says it as if God won't notice the fact that he's trying to pass blame and responsibility onto somebody else. Adam makes a complete mess of the situation and Eve does no better, quite frankly. She tries to cover it up just as much as Adam does. Woman, what is this you have done? God said to her. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She tells a half-truth to God, hoping that she can pull the wool over his eyes. And at the very least, she hopes that God won't notice that, that she is doing the same exact thing that her husband was doing, trying to pass the buck. It's all such a mess. And it compounds the original sin with all of their attempts to cover it up. And their cover-ups include all manner of things that, that we've seen in this life, right? Half-truths and whole lies and deceit and playing the blame game, even blaming God who put him here. It's all such a mess. They had to be taught that fig leaves, that fig leaves don't work. That their attempts to cover up their sin before God don't work. We hear so much in this story, so much that we dislike about humanity, and, and even worse, so much that we hate about ourselves. Because we don't use fig leaves and trees to hide our sin, but we certainly use words and actions. We don't hide behind the trees uh, to cover up our shame and our guilt, but rather we bury it deep within the recesses of our heart in the hopes that, that well, the one who created our hearts won't be able to find it there. Like Adam and Eve, we, we try to play the blame game and make somebody else culpable for the things that we've done instead of owning up and, and bearing the responsibility for the sins that we've committed. Like like Adam and Eve, we need to be told that yeah, our attempts at fig leaves and trees, our attempts at cover-ups don't work either. In fact, they only make things worse. Because when you try to cover up your sin and hide it from God, do you know what you're saying about God? And really, you're making a statement about yourself, too. You're saying that either you are more powerful than God, or that God's knowledge is limited. Either way, you end up in a bad place theologically and even in, in, in an even worse place for your faith. And it's not just that. When you, you're, the, all of the cover-ups that we attempt to make in this life to cover up our sin, they're all born out of guilt. I think we recognize that. Guilt is what drives us to hide the things that we've done from other people and from God. But when you try to cover it up, you're not actually sorry for what you've done. I'm lumping myself in here too. When I try to cover up my sins, I'm not actually sorry for the things that I've done. 
Because in covering it up, you're doing the exact opposite of, of the thing that God wants you to do, which is to have a heart that is repentant. Now, repentance it has a very simple definition, kind of a two-part one. Repentance is having sorrow over your sin or being sorry for your sin, and it's also trusting in God to forgive that sin. But when we try our version of fig leaves and trees to hide our sins, you know where we end up? We end up not sorry for our sins in the least, and we also aren't trusting God that he loves us enough to actually forgive that sin. And when all of this happens, do you know who's winning? Satan. As much as I don't want it to be true, as much as I don't want you to, as much as you don't want it to be true, every time that we try to cover up a sin, Satan is winning because Satan uses all of the cunning and the power at his disposal to appeal to our sinful nature in just the right way. And the way that he does that for you and me is the same way he did it all those years ago in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say that that sin needs to be forgiven? Did God really say that you can't make an attempt to hide that sin? Did God really say that it's not somebody else's fault? Gosh, Satan is so good at what he does. And every time he asks you those questions, and he even gets you to consider the plausibility of those questions that he's asking, what he is doing is driving you further and further away from the one who actually can forgive, who is willing to forgive, and actually promises to forgive you. When Satan causes you to question God and gets you to even consider covering over your sins, what he is doing is driving you further and further away from the God who loves you and from his message of arrow-pointing-down love found in the gospel. Yeah, as much as Adam and Eve did, we need to be made viscerally aware that our, our attempts at covering up our sin don't work. Because every time it does, we create a bigger and bigger mess for ourselves. And God knows this. God knows this because in the midst of that mess that we find in Genesis chapter 3, pops up verse 15. It's like, it's like a, a phoenix rising out of the ashes, right? The first word of that, of that statement that God makes, this promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15. It's a, it's a word that, that quickens our souls, that makes, us feel, that makes us feel alive and feel loved again. It's this word enmity. At least that's the first word in the Hebrew Bible, enmity. It's a word that means that God has come to deal with our mess and all of our failed attempts at covering up our sin and all of our failed attempts to deal with our sin on our own in general. Enmity, God says. Enmity I will place. Now, when God first placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Right? We talked about this. They were in perfect harmony with God. They were in perfect harmony with each other. They were in perfect harmony with all of creation. But the moment that they decided to trust in somebody else, to trust Satan instead of God, to trust in his words rather than God's, that changed everything because the moment that they ate from that fruit, the moment that they ate from that fruit, there was enmity in the world. But it was enmity between God and man. Enmity between God and his creation. What a sad thing that is. So when God shows up in Genesis 3.15 and says, enmity I will place. Enmity I will place between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is doing is making the promise that he is going to put that enmity back where it belongs. What he is doing is making you the promise of, of giving you a cover-up 
a cover-up that actually works, one that is not found in our attempts by hiding behind fig leaves and trees, but it's a cover-up that's based and made in flesh and blood. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring, which are unbelievers, and her offspring, which are believers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first promise to fallen, broken, sinful humanity that there was going to be rescue for them. And God gave them the picture of this promise throughout the whole of the Old Testament, didn't he? First in the sacrificial system that says, your sins have created enmity between you and me. And the sacrificial system gives you a way to cover over those sins, to cover up those sins, the shedding of blood. But he also gave that picture in the tabernacle and the temple. And do you know what those two things are? They were the dwelling place of God on earth. And within the tabernacle and later in the temple, there was a thick, heavily woven curtain that stood between the holy place and the most holy place. And the picture of that curtain was simple. Your sin creates enmity between you and God. And you cannot go into, you cannot go into the most holy place. Now, there was one person who could, the high priest. He could go in there once a year on the great day of atonement, but he had to follow all of God's strict regulations and rules in order to go in there. And if he would dare try his own version of cover-up, if he would try to go under there or go in there under his own power and strength, under his own set of rules, he would forfeit his life. Enmity I will put, God says, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And this promise, it finds its culmination on a day that we just celebrated a few months ago, on that Friday that we call Good, where God the Son hung on a cross and he spilled his blood and he cried out his last and he gave up his life. Do you know what happened the moment he did that? That temple, that curtain that stood in the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying what? That enmity was put back where it belonged. That enmity no longer stood between you and God, but enmity stood between you and Satan. And the only way that that can happen is if your sins are covered over by the blood of the Lamb. God fulfilled that first and great promise that he made to Adam and Eve by sending his son into the world to live for you and to die for you, to shed his blood, to cover over your sin. What was lost by Adam, by Adam's disobedience in the garden, that perfect relationship with God, is restored in Christ Jesus and given to all of those in whom he plants faith in his hearts. And that faith gives you the full and free confidence to stand before the one true God. Not a confidence based in your own cover-ups, not a confidence based in who you are and what you do, but a confidence based in the holy and innocent blood of the Lamb that completely covers up your sin. In the midst of the mess that you and I make of our lives, in the midst of the mess that Adam and Eve made of God's perfect world, came the first gospel promise. Came beauty and power and comfort and hope and peace. Enmity, I will put, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You see, God came and showed up to give that promise because he knew what was impossible for you and me to do. It's impossible for us to deal with and cover up our sins. So in his love, he came up with a way to do it for us. Enmity I will put between you, child of God, and Satan. I will cover up all of your sins with the holy, innocent blood of my son, 
and I will give you life. Now, in light of these truths, I'm praying for three things for each and every one of you this week. Number one, that when you do sin, and you will because we bear the title sinner saint, that God removes the temptation for you to try to cover up your sin. And he takes it as far away from you as, as possible. Number two, when you do sin, that God continuously leads you to the cross, the place where his love is most clearly seen, where his justice is most clearly displayed, where his son poured out his blood to cover up your sin, to remove your guilt, to give you life. Number three, that God would reallocate all of that energy that you and I use to try to cover up our sins and put it to something more God-pleasing. That he would reallocate that energy to more fully trust in him. That he would reallocate that energy to more fully be devoted to lives that are lived in service and glory to him. And that he would reallocate that energy to tell all of the people that we know, all of the people that we love, all of the people that we haven't connected with yet, the beauty of this promise that is found in Genesis chapter 3. That when it comes to covering up our sin, if fig leaves and trees don't work, but the flesh and blood of the Holy Son of God, it most certainly does. God grant all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.